At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I decided that I wanted to do this series. Now, I'm not sure we'll make it through all 30 teams, but uh, and ho- hopefully we'll be back to basketball quickly enough that we don't make it through all 30 teams, but I'm thinking under most circumstances, we're probably not going to have a chance to do all 30 team previews the way we usually do. So I want to start having some people on to talk about teams season so far, do a season interview, which is somewhat of a privilege. We wouldn't normally get to look back uh, on seasons uh, this way because the focus after the season is over is always on the next season. So uh, let's start it off here with Anthony Slater of The Athletic. How are you doing, man? Good. I'm one of the, uh, I cover one of the few teams that you can do this and kind of comfortably wrap up an entire season without worrying about like, you know, how are the playoffs going to look? How are the final 17 games going to look? We kind of know how their season went. The, the, that last stretch that got, we'll say canceled at this point, at least stopped, didn't really matter. They were kind of just playing out the string. So, uh, we kind of have a full season to look at. Yeah. And, uh, if you're more interested in, the Warriors offseason actually went on Slater's podcast last week, uh, the Warriors All-82 podcast uh, on the Athletic Podcast Network, if, if you want to hear about that. But I uh, want to just catch up still uh, on what happened with this team. Uh, the idea here is we'll, we'll talk about how some of the young players did, how we feel about the organization after this year going forward, uh, stuff like that. So let's begin with this question. Give this team a grade for the season. Am I including like their moves in the off season? Or are we just counting like what when game one started to game whatever it was fifty seven or something? Yeah, that's an interesting one, right? I, I think compared to what we thought was going to happen at the start of the year, I guess. It, what would you say? What would you give them a? Grade I mean, at? I get you know the record is terrible, fifteen and fifty, yes. um, <laughs> and um, you know. At the start of the season, we were talking about you know five seed, six seed, seven seed because they squeeze in and could Clay Thompson somehow you know co- you know come into the fold in April and they make some ru- you know title run or at least you know contending run and that sounds ridiculous in retrospect that that was our thought, um, but part of that was Steph Curry got hurt in the third game of the or fourth game of the season you know um, so I mean if you just look at the record D F. Um, if you kind of put it all into context and add the Steph Curry injury, which in a lot of ways I think was strangely kind of, you know, you don't like that Steph Curry broke his hand and got, you know, potentially a little nerve damage in there, but it, it really allowed them to take the step back. They kind of needed to, and the expectations were lowered to a point where they could just use it as a teaching season. So I don't know. I would probably go with C because I actually think in a weird way, this restart 
as bad as they played on the court was kind of good for them overall. So, I, I mean, it's, it's a strange season to grade. I don't know what you'd go with. Yeah, no, it, it is tough. I mean, you would think just with the record, you would have to go with an F if you wanted to take the seasons of players like Draymond Green compared to what we thought they were capable. You know, that's probably close to could, an F. Could we give him a Z? It was like sleeping, like just a Z. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, and, and D'Angelo Russell, that that obviously didn't work out. I mean, forgot I think, about it, him. Yeah. <laughs> Right, but but I mean, if you were gonna just say, hey, they've still got D'Angelo Russell, they still got Draymond Green, two recent All Stars, quote unquote, uh, you know, you would think they could have been better than the worst team in the league. And even if you look at what they were doing before Curry got hurt, I mean, just getting completely destroyed in three of their first four games, and the only team they beat was a team that started six and twenty-two. Then, yeah, I, I think you're. Uh, you would have to say it's down in like the the F range, but I mean, the so just in terms of like, hey, how did these guys play on the floor this year? I mean, there certainly were some bright spots. We'll get to that, but I mean, they were expected by most people to make the playoffs. I thought they were more likely than not to miss it, but I still thought they'd be in the well, forty games. What's curious is to like think of the alternate path where Steph doesn't get hurt, and like where were they sitting when the season was suspended? You know, I do you think they're five hundred? Um, because that eight seed is very, you know, it's what's crazy is we were wondering if they could sneak in in this like super competitive West. But you look now, if they were just average, if they were 500, they would have very much been in the running for the eight seed. And, you know, maybe suddenly, or maybe we were talking about Clay Thompson potentially trying to rush back for a playoff run again. Uh, what happened to the Warriors has nothing to do with, you know, the COVID 19 situation. That would have happened regardless. We'd be sitting in a suspended season. Um, but if they if Steph doesn't get hurt, maybe they do put themselves in playoff contention. And then now suddenly we're talking about if they restarted the season in June, hey, they could be a kind of like people are talking about the Nets as a dark horse contender yeah. if Kevin Durant suddenly comes back. Like we'd be having that conversation about Clay. Um, but again, I, the the weird thing is, yes, competitively, F, D, F, whatever you want to give them on the court. Um, but I think as we you know, three years from now, look back at this season, you know, we'll say overall, it probably wasn't a terrible thing for them to go through. Yeah. And I, I was going to save this question till later, but since you, you brought it up, do you feel better or worse about this team's long-term future now than you did before the season? I would probably say better uh, because I think they solved the kind of Russell positional confusion. Um, they have got their wing of the future. Now we could talk about if that was the proper guy to get. Um, but I think they are a better team. For, let's throw the contract numbers out the window for now. I think they're a better team with Andrew Wiggins uh, playing, you know, 30 minutes than D'Angelo Russell, like kind of trying to squeeze in as a third guard and still get 30 minutes and his defensive problems. Um, so I think they're better there. I mean, before the season, Clay Thompson was very early in his ACL rehab. Now he's basically in the very late stages of his ACL rehab. Um, I feel worse about Draymond Green, which is a big thing. Yeah. Um, Steph Curry is Steph Curry got a lot of rest. Would be the good argument for him. He also had a pretty severe broken hand. It wasn't just like oh, you know, a little nick there that he can recover from. I mean, we're legitimately talking about potential nerve damage. Although he remember the weird thing about all this. Remember, Steph Curry played a game. Uh, yeah. It was just like dropped just in there like a little game. sprinkle. <laughs> yeah, just one game. So weird. 
Um, and he was really good in it. And like the left, remember he was just like whipping lefty passes with it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, he looked pretty good. He looked like a, uh, himself. I mean, the, the biggest thing about him is like, as long as teams are still scared scared of him, he's going to be really good. Yeah, and um, I mean, we'll get to Eric Pascal, I'm sure, because he's probably the brightest spot of the season. But uh, they they got a rookie. You know, when you pick 28, 39, 41, as they did last year, you really, I mean, obviously you want all three to hit. But if one of those picks hits as like a firm, definite, they believe, rotation piece into the future, I think that's a win. And they got a win. Eric Pascal's a win. So I feel I feel a little bit better, I would say. Well, and then I, I think you would add in the fact that they have a huge asset that they had no way of getting before, which is going to be this 2020 draft trick. Yeah, not a great draft, but still, at a minimum, they could trade that for another starter level of player, at yeah. a minimum, if they wanted to do that. I don't know if the, they probably will shoot higher than that, I would imagine, but it, to have that asset as well. Yeah, it's a good point. You get you get that asset, which remember that you know if they suddenly had a if they somehow had a really good season and Steph had stayed healthy and they were a top ten team, let's say they had the you know they, they got the twenty first overall pick, that's going to Brooklyn in uh, in the Durant yeah. D'Angelo Russell signing trade. So keeping that first rounder was important, and the fact that that first rounder is now going to be guaranteed top five is huge. Uh, also, what happened this season in the Andrew Wiggins, D'Angelo Russell swap, they got Minnesota's 2021 first rounder, which I believe you and Danny have deemed like the best first yeah. round pick in the future that's been moved. So that is a huge asset that, you know, could eventually be added to like the $17.2 million trade exception this summer. And they traded away a bunch of their vets, Willie Cauley-Stein, Glenn Robinson, Alec Burks, like the, these rentals, and they got second rounders now. That's not huge assets, but they were entering the season, I think, with only one of their second rounders over the next like seven seasons. Now suddenly they have like six second rounders. One thing that has gotten worse, though, obviously, is that they may be more affected by the COVID-19 crisis and revenue loss than some other teams because a lot of their revenue is based on having built the Chase Center, having these luxury boxes, having all these concerts and other events in addition to Warriors games that uh, they did obviously get out of the tax for this year, so they won't pay the repeater tax next year. But Joe Lacob had a recent interview uh, with the Athletics' Tim Kawakami saying how he's going to have to reevaluate and see where they're at financially before we know if he can really do the full pedal to the metal spending that that $17 million trade exception, the mini mid-level next year, you know, up to $10 million in extra salary from their first-round draft pick. Uh, whether they can go as hard there. And if they can't, that's really going to hamstring them because that was that's kind of the whole plan was they could ramp up the spending again next year. Yeah, well, what's interesting is they were already um, not pumping in the revenue that was expected, right? Because when they built the building, they were expecting this uh, you know, Kevin Durant infused dynasty to to still be kind of roaming the land. And um, that was going to be a lot of obviously hyped up regular season games that would have made them more money. And the more important thing that probably would have been, oh, let's say 12, 15 playoff home games that they were already not going to get pre crisis regardless, like for them to not make the playoffs this season was unforeseen when they were building the building. Um, so, but I mean, when you actually look at the crisis, if 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 what happens is just that this you know last half of the rate or this last little bit of the regular season gets knocked off, they only lost seven home games. 
you know, that'll end up, you know, losing them, let's say 20, it's around like 25 million or so. Uh, not great, but not catastrophic. Uh, they lose concerts, you know, they keep canceling these concerts in the summer. That's, that's little trickles of money that they're missing out on. But I think if you could guarantee them 41 home games next season that starts at or around when it's supposed to, you know, October, November range, um, I think they're fine because they believe they're going to reboot and come back and they didn't lose that that much money. They spend big. Um, but can we guarantee that at this point? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the problem. I mean, you have this, I think it was what the Santa Clara, well, I don't, somebody that matters uh, in Santa Clara said Thanksgiving is like the date for sports potentially to return. Yeah. Wow. It, I mean, you're talking about live sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, that's when we're talking about the Warriors making money. It is putting on huge events at Chase Center. And yeah. uh, they it's they don't know when that's coming back. And that is going to matter. When Joe Lacob's talking about, like, he doesn't know yet, like, that's going to matter in, like, do they go out and use this huge trade exception, the, the mid-level? Do they really round out a rotation that kind of needs to be rounded out? Yeah, and it also seems like of all the governmental authorities, California is probably going to be the most reticent of any to – start allowing business as usual again, which I think is the correct decision for public health, but also uh, is going to negatively impact the Warriors' bottom line. Um, what do you think are the biggest things? Oh, here, actually, let's take a, a quick break first, and then we uh, got a lot, lot more questions to get to. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. 
Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us what do you think are the biggest things that the team learned this year um i would say their center spot i think really shifted um we're going into the year it was like kavon looney had re-signed last summer on what everyone deemed very team-friendly three-year 15 million dollar contract coming off a great playoffs and like he he was you know he's only 23 turning 24 people believed he's like really emerging as the center of the warriors future now he had a just absolutely disaster hell season which included uh neuropathy hamstring issues ab issues he just it's just clear the body could never get right um and he's still under that contract but i think it's pretty clear to the franchise as of now they can't plan on him being like a really yeah. firm part of the future. So that they've learned that. Um, they learned that Willie Cauley Stein wasn't a fit, so they traded away his contract, which you know he had a player option for this next season. And they found Marquise Chris uh, kind of in the rubble. And I think Marquise Chris is is your projected starting center for next season. Now the draft can change that. You know, if a James Wiseman or somebody comes in, uh, the conversation shifts. But they've, to me, they've learned about their future, their center spot, which they don't really prioritize a ton financially. But you still want a reliable option, and they seem to believe Marquise Chris is a young, a developmental, reliable option. We'll see. Um, uh, but that's what yeah. they've learned. Um, I, then- I think on, on Chris real quickly, I, I'm not as high on him as they are. And, and, you know, they have no reason publicly not to just pump up their young players. It's good PR. It just, it, there's no reason not to do that. But to me, he's just too bad defensively. He's undersized, doesn't have the greatest, uh, lateral mobility, doesn't have the greatest help. And he still get some spectacular blocks every now and then, but conventional pick and roll defense, he can't really play that. Uh, you know, not the greatest switch guy. I think he's a solid offensive center, but I, I think he's a, at best a backup center that you deploy uh, very sparingly uh, against the right matchup and maybe not in the playoffs. Maybe he can improve to get there, but I, I wouldn't want to be counting on him as my starting yeah. center on a good team next year. They need to supplement him. You know, get, they need to get a good veteran 
somewhere. Yeah. Whether that is, you know, if they could somehow squeeze a Marcus Soul into like a taxpayer mid level, then suddenly he's your starter. And Chris is what you are saying he should be. Um, if they can't do that, they should at least get a, a semi reliable backup behind him. But also, you know, you peer into the future. Another thing they learned is Draymond Green still cannot shoot. Um, and that's become like almost a guarantee that he's not really going to shoot well. So he's going to play a lot more center, I think, moving forward, especially because, again, another thing they learned with Pascal, he's a solid four man. So, you know, they're going to try to fit those two in the same lineup together. That, that could mean that, you know, we need to probably start talking more about Draymond Green as, as a center, maybe moving forward. Yeah. Uh, And maybe also, especially if Pascal can emerge, maybe, they play Draymond at center, but he's also not playing 38 minutes a game next year during the regular season. I mean, I guess one good thing is that they avoided basically an entire season of wear and tear on Draymond as well. But, I mean, those shooting numbers for him were grisly. 36 out of 129 from three, 28%. He shot 39% overall from the field, and that's not on exactly like, you know, a diet of what would be difficult attempts for normal players. Well, you want to know, it's so uh, this was early in the season that, that Steph had broken the hand. They were, I don't know, I, I can't remember the record at this point, they were, but they were probably something like 3-11. and 11, And it was very clear they were just crashing towards the lottery. They had given up on the playoff hope. They knew Steph was going to be out a while. Um, and, and the bigger, you know, there was kind of a story emerging around the team, like what is this season supposed to be for Draymond? Um, and I, we were in New Orleans after a practice day and we went into like, he, he was doing the cold tub after a practice. He's like, yeah, sure. I'll give you 30 minute interview, whatever. And part of the interview was like, you know, what is this season for you? You're a guy who's like always won your entire life and you're about to be on probably, you know, one of the top three worst teams in basketball. And he was like, I just got to refine my shot. Like that was like his one goal this season. He was just going to work on, okay, the corner three spot ups after practice. Like he was, he was really going to try not to care about wins and losses at all, which he kind of didn't this season, but he was going to try to refine the shot and he just didn't. So that like, to me, that was the failure of the season. And that's just the, the Warriors need to forecast that into the future. Like Draymond Green is not a three point shooter. Yeah, and obviously when you're playing with Steph and Clay, I mean, I think another lesson, I mean, he'll look a lot better with those guys, but another lesson is that Draymond, at least at this point in his career, really needs to be, I think he can still be effective, but he really needs to be in the right lineups, in the right system uh, to have that effect. I mean, he wasn't exactly like, you know, making a great defense by himself either this year, though the effort level wasn't that high. So maybe they've got to think of him more as just like, well, Let's hope he's a playoff player. Unfortunately, we're not going to know whether he can still bring it in the playoffs until next year, uh, until assuming the they make it. And he um, will, he will yeah, have already yeah. turned 31, and right. he will be on the first year of a four-year, $100 million extension that's about to kick in. Uh, and, you know, we mentioned Pascal. The, Pascal was a lot better with Draymond off the floor this year, and and that that is a concern, just their yeah. fit together. You want to know yeah. another thing we learned? The Russell fit didn't uh, yeah. work. I mean, that was the big thing we learned, <laughs> yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. That, that was. I, I was going to make sure we brought that one up. I mean, the fact that Pascal might be a player too, I, I think, uh, is pretty big. Um, and, and I think he and Draymond can play together if they have, you know, the two greatest shooters of all time or close to it playing with both those guys as well. It's going to look a lot different. Pascal, in particular, like his finishing is going to be a major weapon. I think. I mean, he can really almost play 
the center position, the dunker spot, get some alley-oops. Like he's, I think he and Draymond can work together offensively if you know, you've got both of those shooters out there. Um, anything else, that, that, maybe even some smaller well, things that popped I, out to you? I mean, not to just hijack this from you and, and yeah. kind of more ask you about it, but you know, I mentioned the uh, Russell for Wiggins swap, which to me is like kind of the – probably the story of the season i mean like because you go back to last summer it was a pretty monumental decision from the franchise to not just let kevin durant walk but to trade andre iguodala you know reshape the roster young behind him and give diaz russell this max deal that hard capped them which you know really changed a lot of their decision making this season and they obviously pulled the plug on that in february um for, for andrew wiggins they get his contract i mentioned the pick but like where to like where are you at on that deal now that you've kind of we've all been allowed some time to sit back maybe look at the Wiggins fit a little bit kind of examine Russell's flaws think about the pick swaps that were all involved like like where are you at on that so my initial thought was is it easier to trade for a superstar with D'Angelo Russell and this their upcoming number one pick or is it easier to trade for a superstar with that number one pick, Wiggins, and the Wolves pick? Um, I do agree with you. I think they are slightly better with Wiggins than they are with Russell. He just um, plays small forward. I mean, that's probably yeah. the biggest quality. I mean, it's yeah. just a position. I, I mean, I don't know that Wiggins was that substantially different in Golden State. Maybe he'll have an awakening on a good team. I'm not sure. I mean, the three-pointer still right around the same 34%. He had a higher percentage of his shots assisted, which was a good thing. That's going to continue to be the case. They don't rely on him in isolation. Hopefully, he can help out in transition. But I was hoping to learn more about him. I, I don't think that the – I mean, certainly everyone is going to be very positive about him and I didn't you know he only played 12 games with the Warriors I don't I wasn't I don't think you should substantially change your prior and and as mentioned his stats are pretty much similar to what they were in Minnesota so you got to hope he can get better defensively maybe he does I think they're better though I'll tell you this like even though Russell is clearly a better player and a better asset than Wiggins overall you knew for sure that with Russell on the team they just couldn't go anywhere like he's just too it makes too much money too bad defensively. They just weren't going to be able to be a serious playoff team, a serious playoff defense, I think, with him out there. So Wiggins at least provides that possibility, you know, where teams aren't going to just go at him mercilessly. You know, he looks the part out there, and then they get picked up another asset with that. So uh, it depends. I think if, if their goal is to just, you know, build incrementally, pick up another starter with the trade exception, I think that trade helps them. I, I, I've come around on that a little bit. If you're trying to say, hey, we want to trade for the best superstar, now Wiggins really, or Draymond, is going to have to be the salary ballast there. You did pick up this extra asset. So uh, I think, uh, and also just the fact that Wiggins has now been traded probably just makes it more tradable again. Like someone took him already, so maybe someone else will take him now. Uh, so I, I, I feel a little better about it than I did at the time when I wasn't as into it. Yeah, I think the Clay Thompson aspect of this, matters and uh, i'm not sure people have talked about it though but if russell was still around like clay thompson's your starting three next season he's, he he might come back too slow from the acl to where he has to be a three anyway yeah i just 
thinking about him being like the primary guy. It's like, hey, go. You're starting the game on LeBron. You're starting the game on Kawhi. Like, yeah. I know Clay Thompson is is big enough and sturdy enough. He's you know he's a six seven. He's about as good and you know physically there as you'll get out of the shooting guard position. But coming off an ACL, I just I think they wanted another primary wing defender. And again, I know Andrew yeah. Wiggins uh, historically defensively has not been terrific. That every Wolves yeah. defense he's been on hasn't been great. But you can at least see a wing defender there. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. Um. What are some of the biggest questions that are still unanswered uh, after this season? Um, I mean, uh, Clay Thompson, you know, I, I had been kind of, I don't know if advocating is the right word, but I had brought up a few times the Paul George example of Paul George breaks his leg in, I can't remember the exact summer August, that would have August 1st of 2014. August 1st, 2014. And the, I would say, in retrospect, people's thought is, Paul George missed the entire next season. He didn't. Uh, he came back in April, played, I believe, six games, yeah. maybe In five. a playoff race, actually. They got eliminated from the playoffs on the last day of the season. The Nets made it. But but he came back. He came off the bench. You look at his minute totals, never over 20. It was like 15 minutes, 17 minutes, 16 minutes, 18 minutes. But I do think that that little sample for him going into the summer probably um, – kind of you know reaffirmed to him you know hey his legs are there he's you know clay thompson just didn't get that um so his first you know uh competitive nba game sure he'll get some preseason which will matter and we'll, we'll watch that closely but like you know opening night next season as the warriors try to you know reboot themselves back into contention will be clay thompson's first real nba game um since an acl tear it's gonna it's a little Porzingis-like, I think, particularly if they move this uh, start of the season back to you know Christmas, as has been kind of rumored as a possibility. I believe that'll be um, twenty months, or you know something like 18, 19, 20 months yeah. from the uh, you know the last time he played. So, like, he's the biggest. Like, either him or Draymond. I think we could argue one of the two because Draymond didn't take a year off injury-wise, but as we've talked about, kind of took a year off. Um, so. Just can those two be fringe all stars still? Uh, yeah, is probably the biggest decider on is this team a title contender or not? Yeah, I mean that's really what it boils down to. All this other stuff, like who can they pick up with the trade exception? Who are they going to draft? Unless they trade for another superstar, if Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson are anything close to the guys that they have been in the playoffs previously then this team is a title contender. Otherwise, they're not. Yeah. Let me – like, I want you to rank those. I'm least worried about Steph, and I think you probably are too, even though he's the oldest. But I'm least worried about Steph. Where are you on 2-3? Are you more worried about Draymond getting back to his level or Clay off an ACL? Probably still Draymond. I mean, both of them I have substantial concerns. Um, But, yeah, I mean, Draymond as an undersized 31-year-old – power forward now we've seen like pj tucker continue to be effective with a similar build and and probably worse physical tools going into you know age 34 age 35 although worth noting that tucker has the corner three that draymond doesn't have um you know that's a big part of it he can space out and at least teams are worried about him hitting corner threes but yeah i think you know defensively i think he can do enough and but a big question too is you know is he enough of a threat with the ball where he can push it down and at least draw the defense enough where they're worried about him finishing a layup or 
uh, you know, doing those fake DHOs and getting to the rim. Like, can he still provide even the slightest amount of scoring? You know, that's uh, that's a question for me. But Clay too, I I really think you know he's going to be in his early thirties. You just you never know coming off of this type of an injury. Um, he certainly has the profile of a player with his shot and size who can weather the ACL tear a lot, but he's never the most athletic guy either. So it's, uh, you know, I think defensively in particular, I, I would expect to step back from him. Yeah. Um, you, when you look at like ACL recoveries, usually like the 20 month, 21 month to like about 24 month, two year mark is yeah. where you really see guys start to, um, maybe look like their old selves. Although a lot of these yeah. guys that we look at historically may have torn it when they were 24, 25 and came back 26 ish. Clay, like you said, is yeah. now entering his 30s. But, you know, next year's playoffs, which is when, you know, you really need him back to being Clay, Clay Thompson, will be about, you know, 22 months post injury. So it's it's conceivable he could, you know, it, he's a hard worker too. I mean, like, there's a reason why Clay Thompson is yeah. like a workhorse. 82 games per year type guy so you know he's been working at it yeah you know i think another thing we could say uh that's a, a question is just more of a general one is you know steve kerr's coaching and like can his offensive system run when you don't have the two two of the greatest shooters of all time in it you know they were 30th in offense this year and i don't know that they're the talent that they had would have necessarily uh said that they should be that terrible um well, what's interesting about that is that is a question that Steve Kerr, I think, will eventually have to show. But the truth is, like he's like this franchise is relying upon those two to be out there. Yeah. So um, as you look towards next season and the next few seasons, like I'm not sure that's a question that has to be answered. You know, like if yeah. Clay or Steph aren't out there, they're not a playoff team. You know, they're we we can answer that question already. So. Um, <laughs> That's more of a like next decade. Like, is Steve Kerr going to have a Greg Popovich like run with the Warriors, where it's just same guy? You can roll in different style. You know, you know how Popovich over the years. Right. You know, I know obviously Tim Duncan and, and Ginobili and Parker were like his mainstays, but he's really flipped their style of play. And Steve Kerr is you know very much a Popovich mentee or whatever you'd uh, call it. And um, Will he be able to adjust himself? But I don't think that's an answer we start to get until like Clay and Steph really age out. Yeah, no, I, I suppose you're right. Hopefully they'll they'll be back. So um, biggest positive here. Actually, let's let's do one more quick break and then then we'll get to this. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, 
cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. All right, biggest positive surprise to you this season? Pascal. Um, we've already yeah. kind of, you know, discussed it some, but, you know, we're talking about the 41st overall pick um, who dropped in the draft. I remember I was looking at all these options at 28 for the Warriors. I think I did 28 options for the Warriors at the 28th pick. I won't have to do that many this year. It'll be like third pick or something. But um, <laughs> Pascal was among the 28, um, and Jordan Poole wasn't. Jordan Poole, they ended up getting at 28, was projected to go around, you know, mid-40s. So it was a disappointment draft night-wise that Pascal fell that far. Uh, In summer league, you saw a little bit of a flash where it's like, you know, I think they they got a guy that can kind of maybe help on the very edge of the rotation uh, in small ways. And then right away, really, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say right away, really after the Curry injury where they had to just – completely you know re-examine what the team was supposed to be without Steph Curry on the floor suddenly they were like giving him the ball Pascal the ball in isolation and like he became their go-to scorer and it was like man out of the draft even when anyone was doing draft prep it was like you know you would get these like Draymond comparisons of like undersized like bulky foreman that uh you know can kind of be a glue guy on a team and you you thought well he'll help him defensively um but he just his best skill is like isolation like bully ball scoring and he had like 30 point nights and he like his breakout moment was that yes it was their first win at chase center ever where he just like dominated the Blazers. I think he finished with like 34. Um, and he's just like, I mean, but to me, by far the biggest surprise positively of the season. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then it seemed like teams caught up to him through the middle of the season where, uh, you know, he was going left every time. He was getting a ton of charges, which was a problem for him in college as well. And it seemed like he was getting frustrated, getting into foul trouble a lot. But then the last month or so, it seemed like the game slowed down for him a lot. I thought this is big, especially for players who are really strong, that just trust your strength. Don't feel like you have to go you know, a 1,000 miles an hour every time to go through guys that you can just knock them backwards even while staying under control and not picking up offensive fouls. So I think he started to learn that a little bit. His passing came around as well. He was very much you know, one track mind as a scorer. That's part of why he had so many turnovers also. So, uh, and then his finishing, I thought was pretty good. And defensively, you know, he's not a huge playmaker, but another guy who can just be out there and hold up and not necessarily get attacked has some ability to switch. So yeah, I liked him. Um, I would say actually of all the other players that they had, there are two others that I, I think who were still on the team at the end of the year that I really looked 
as potential contributors for next is, year. One of is them is Michael Mulder. I was going to say, is Michael Mulder about to get a shout out? Uh, no. Well, uh, that, that's not, let's not jump the gun here. We'll talk about da- Damian Lee first. He's more, he's more yeah. important. True. Um, he has 600,000 yeah. guaranteed for next season. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, I, th- I thought, I don't know about you, but I thought he really was the one player who still understood how Kerr wanted to play out there a lot of the times. And I think he's going to fit in really well. With uh, his brother-in-law, yeah. Steph Curry, and Draymond, and the whole system once uh, they get it back up and running. I think the biggest thing with him that you could tell compared to some of his teammates who were, you know, not as successful this season is his age. You know, 27. I know he was viewed as part of this like young conglomerate of players trying to, uh, you know, find you know find their footing in the NBA, and he is trying to do that. You know, he is very much on the fringes. He started the season on a two-way deal, um, but. He is a much more veteran player. I mean, again, 27 years old, different life experience, super smart player, understands the system very well, is very bought in, hustles at all times. He had some random big rebounding nights, and I mean, we're not talking about like a yeah. you know, monster of a guard. He just knows how to play, man. Yeah. It really stuck out this year with a bunch of guys who didn't. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, yeah, I, to me, he's like clay insurance. Um where Clay Thompson next season will probably not play 82 games. You know, we're talking, what, 60 games is probably wise for Clay Thompson yeah. next season. Um, Damian Lee, if if the Warriors stack their rotation a little bit with the financial tools that they have this summer, and Clay Thompson is back, and they have a full rotation, Damian Lee may get a DNP. But if Clay Thompson is getting limited minutes, or if their rotation isn't as, uh, you know, thick as they want it to be entering next season Damian Lee will have a bigger role and he will be so accepting of whatever role he gets which matters you know with your 12th man yeah I think he can be more than that uh, because he can shoot he knows how to cut he can pass and a pretty decent transition player as well he at least knows where to be defensively certainly in the regular season just to get reliable shooting around this group is going to be massive they just even going back to the dynasty years they didn't have that those last couple of years uh, now there could be he, an argument damian yeah. lee should have been on the playoff roster instead of like Yurebko or somebody um you know couple yes. of seasons ago yeah because that, uh, then maybe that box and one by nick nurse doesn't work as well but yeah, and I don't know how well he's going to hold up in the playoffs that's the reason he wasn't on the playoff roster uh, as a defensive player but uh you know, at least just having someone that you know can be out there and has to get guarded won't be a liability offensively, I think, is big. And then uh, you alluded to it. Michael Mulder is the other one who I was very impressed by. He took over nine three-point attempts per 36 minutes, hit 31% of them, but he's known as a shooter. His G League shooting stats were outstanding. He had a, a truncated career at Kentucky, uh, left there as a 22-year-old. He was in the Miami Heat G League system, Warriors signed him out of there, and he played so well on his first 10-day that they didn't even give another 10-day. They just signed it. Yeah, so the Warriors had this interesting situation at the trade deadline where they just they had a roster purge. They they traded off Glenn Robinson and Alec Burks and brought nothing back. Uh, they traded away Russell, and when they did the Russell for Wiggins swap, they added Jacob Evans and Omari Spellman into the deal to duck the tax, and suddenly on deadline day when all the dust was settled, they had like – Six open roster spots, and I'm surprised you didn't mention your guy Juan Toscano Anderson as as one of the guys that impressed. But he was w- one of multiple guys they were just shuffling through in the in the last what, three four weeks before 
the regular season ended that they must have, I mean, I could add them up, but, um, you know, Jeremy Pargo and Dragon Bender was in on a couple 10 days and, um, they just were really, and they would have kept going until the end of the regular season. They would just kept, you know, Chaston Randall was in there. Um, and Mulder's the one guy they found with this like random ability to just shuffle a bunch of 10 day guys in. And, um, I, I remember the game he really, to me, won his roster spot full time was in Phoenix. They actually won. And he, at some point in like second quarter, like went up to like Draymond and Steve Kerr on the bench was like, I want uh, Devin Booker. Let me guard Devin Booker. And like Draymond and Steve Kerr, like for the next week or two, we were like talking about how much that impressed them that this like guy on a 10 day, like demanded to guard Booker. A guy on a 10 day who they brought in really be- only because he led the G League and made threes. They had no clue if he was any type of defender. And I'm not saying he's like, a guy that's going to lock Devin Booker up, but they just love the mentality of like, I'm going to, I think I can. Um, and you know, I think he impressed him a little bit athletically and he can shoot it. You know, he can get really hot. He really chucks. That was the one thing he led the G league in attempts too, which, yeah. he, you know, on this roster that's had the macaws in the past and Omri Caspi is the guys that are kind of hesitant around clay and Steph to even throw the shot up. Because, hey, why am I taking a shot away from Stephen Clay? Uh, they want it. I think they want a guy that, that's kind of a, a little bit of a chucker coming off the bench. Yeah, I, I think his future can be okay. We'll see how well he holds up defensively and the shots got to go in at the NBA level. But I didn't see, he didn't look like overwhelmed out there physically. You know, he looked like he could be at, at minimum he, a, a bench shooter. You know, another thing that I've been told they loved, he came from Miami's system. You know, yeah, uh, and, and that that's always been a very good developmental kind of militaristic style. Um, <laughs> you know, even even to their G League team, which is where they got him. And I mean, you could kind of see that Miami Heat mentality. I mean, in really good shape when he came in, very professional. I remember he would do these, you know, post game pressers, which you know Warriors PR will be. You know, they'll put ten day guys on in press conference settings, and he was just like making sure to thank every reporter you know hey glad to meet you you know that type of stuff and it was like okay yeah this is a very serious business guy yeah no i I, i'm not around enough for for him to talk to me um god i I was just thinking about it now of like do you remember when people were like oh yeah you know if just we're gonna protect the players by just having them six feet back from the reporters and uh we'll be able to go on business as usual (laughs) hey they did that one game i remember they they like set up a makeshift press conference outside the visiting locker room in chase center for that uh, yeah but like like just just the utter naivete that like oh yeah uh, th- this will enable us to keep going no actually our compl- our entire economy is going to be uh it's going to be shut down within yeah. a week here so uh no this this may not be enough what why one one regret is i i kind of wanted to see that nets warriors game that was going to go oh, on yeah. with no fans but yeah truth is the nets also had multiple guys um you know that had coronavirus so, so probably so, a good yeah, thing but, that didn't go on uh yes that that's your all right this will be hilarious team mvp for this season oh man um <laughs> this is i mean I, I think there's probably this is the hardest one for uh this is the first one we're doing this is gonna be the hardest one in the whole league uh you could make i could probably make two arguments i mean like if we're just like talking about who was their best player Probably Pascal and the wins that mattered the most. You know, like if you think about their most memorable wins and they didn't have many, um, Pascal was typically like 
the guy that shined the most, particularly those early season wins. Yeah, he did uh, lead the team in minutes, 1,654 oh, minutes, started only 26 out of 60 games. I mean, is it possible it's D'Angelo Russell? Probably not, right? No. I mean, they weren't any better with him on the floor. He only played 1,000 minutes for the Warriors, amazingly enough. Only yeah. played 33 games. He missed a lot of games. In a, I mean, this is going to sound kind of demented, but I think Steph Curry breaking his hand. Um, <laughs> just like it, it, it completely. Well, so, so Aaron Baines then? Aaron Baines. There you go. Yes. Aaron Baines stepping over to take a super dangerous charge in a blowout. Um, oh man! But I mean, you 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 follow it close because you live around here. Like the really kind of wrong expectations that this team was under. That Steve Kerr was remember very loudly like trying to tell the media that they weren't going to be very good at least at the start yeah. of the season. And then Steph breaking his hand, it just it just seemed to ease the entire franchise, um, knowing like they're not going to go try to chase it under man this season and you know coming off five finals runs and just like the fatigue of the entire franchise from just like the con being under the constant microscope and really capped off by what well, was one of the most dramatic finals the end of that finals run that went you know katie achilles tear in game five to the clay acl tear and just everything that went into like the end of the durant era like in a strange way when when steph broke his hand i mean there was like obviously like sadness for Steph uh personally but it like I I would tell people during the season you have never and you know we go to these cities and be like man how is it wow you know they're they're nine and 42 it's like man they're in great mood this is a franchise in a great mood it's a <laughs> teaching environment you've never seen a happier lottery team um and it's you know a lot of it is because job security you know usually yeah, and the belief that it's temporary. Yes, belief it's temporary, which comes with job security because, um, you know, the belief is, you know, usually a situation like this, the coach is thinking he's going to get fired. Maybe the GM and him are like kind of backstabbing each other. There was none of that. Um, and I think some of that was the Curry injury took, it, it even had to made Joe Lacob have to sit there and go, you know what, playoffs aren't going to happen this year. And for that to happen was probably important. All right, so there you have it, Aaron Baines, t- team MVP. Oh, uh, if I if I were being serious, I I would go with, I mean, pa- it's probably between Pascal, Glenn Robinson, and Alec Burks. Wow, two, two guys who didn't did, uh, or or maybe maybe actually no, you know what? I Damian Lee might actually be it to me. I think they were much better when he was out there. I would um, go with Pascal. Yeah, it, it, I'll, it probably does that to be him. Um, wrote. Rotation player who struggled the most. No, no shortage of candidates no, on this one. No, there aren't. I will go with a guy we haven't talked about and we probably should. Uh, Jordan Poole. Um, rookie. 28th overall pick. You know, first rounder comes with all, you know, doesn't come with the expectations of the first rounder they're about to get. But, um, you know, he would have been out of the rotation on a normal Warriors team, but he was kind of shoved into it. And I don't know if, if you can get his stats up month by month, but... Like he was historically bad from an efficiency standpoint. The first, like, really up through December, I think there's a month. It might have been December, might have been November, where he like, I think he made like one shot the whole month. Um, oh yeah, like his two point percentage yes. was like in the twenties at one point. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was like uncomfortably bad for a while, and like you could tell, even the coaching staff felt bad. Like, man, they would love to get him in the G League. They would love to really, you know, again on a normal team that wasn't. And we talk about Steph's injury. 
the like the entire team was injured for for chunks of the season where they would be playing with like you know seven guys only two bench players and like Jordan Poole they kept having to run Jordan Poole out there against NBA guards who were just eating him up yeah um, and eventually they got enough guys back and they they did send him to the G League and he did recover. And he had, and they uh, when they traded Evans and Russell at the deadline, they gave him the ball more, and he does seem to be more of like maybe a backup point guard type stuff. So there were some flashes late, but he really kind of had a bad rookie season. It, it, I'm just got a couple of stats here for you. Actually, this is this is a, a little bit of a non sequitur, but Michael Mulder had a plus six point two net rating in two hundred and four minutes, and he was, uh, he was the only plus guy on there. Uh, uh, no, no. Don't, how dare you give short shrift to Jeremy Pargo, who had a plus 2.4 net rating in 44 minutes. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a rough season for everyone. Um, I would have to probably go with Jacob Evans, who... Yeah, I guess it. I forgot about him because he's been traded and he's now kind of on the wolves. Thank God. Um, nice guy. Yes, yes. Uh, but not an NBA basketball player, I, I don't think, it, at this point. Um all right, we talked about pretty much all the young players already uh, of note. Who do you expect to be a key player on this team in two years? So that's after the summer of 21, start of the 21-22 season. Well, let me pull up their roster, and we could pretty much go through it. I think their starting lineup, barring a, uh, a big chess piece that they somehow find this summer with like the $17.2 million Trade exception is in place, so that's obviously Steph, Clay, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, Marquise Chris. I think that's their starting five on opening night um, for for next year. Yeah, yeah, but but you're but what about two years from now? Okay, um, I I would guess that the four main cogs right there, the four highly paid guys who are all under contract past next season, um, still are there. I I don't think they're going to trade Wiggins just because I don't think. They're gonna be able to like swing the home run that they would, yeah, you know, need to. Um, so those four, I could see Chris still. You know, again, depends on who they draft. I, I, I think that's very uh, influential. Yeah, they, um, they would hope that whoever they draft is going to be a starter going into his second year. Yeah, for sure. Um, so whoever that is, uh, I think Chris will be around. I think they like him. I think the the organizational fit is good. Pascal, obviously. Um, beyond that. I mean, Alan Smilagic is a guy who just got his first mention of the entire podcast. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I see it, but he is under like contract for. They signed him to a four year. I'm going to predict that he will be waived by but, uh, before after, after the uh, before the 21 22 season starts. Yeah, I I would probably um, agree. Uh, yeah. Maybe a better question is just who do you expect to still be on the team next year? Maybe I, maybe I yeah yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I would just say once we, we well. I, I mentioned that starting five, Pascal to me is a guarantee at six, um, and then beyond that, we can really kind of start having discussions on if any, you know, if guys will be around at all. I, yeah. Bowman, I don't really think so. Uh, Damian Lee, I we we had the discussion about why Kavon Looney. I mean, he has he's under contract for two more years, including a player option on that one. After I could see him becoming maybe even a, a trade piece as soon as this summer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, especially if they maybe they could. I mean, they have still other of their own future first round picks that they could potentially trade, and maybe attaching one of those to him 
get back a player who can play, use him as the salary ballast. It, maybe, maybe that player is a center. Um, so uh, last thing here, give me one word to describe this team's season. Vacation. <laughs> it, it, it really, you know, the work was done by particularly like the coaching staff and the young players. But overall, I mean, it was such a gap year vacation that, I mean, for some players, Clay Thompson, it literally was a vacation. They would be on the road trip and you'd be like, oh, here's a picture of Clay with his girlfriend in, you know, Bali or, you know, they're in Cabo this weekend. Um, so their main guys, Steph would stay home for a lot of road trips, particularly when like the hand was in a bad place before it started recovering a bit better. Um, Draymond, you know, there would be, he would, particularly by the end of the season, he would just like sit for little stretches with like minor injuries. Um, and you know, again, long-term, I think it was the right play. Rest the bodies, rest the minds. Um, don't stress about losing games. I mean, like they were frustrated, particularly when they would get blown out. And Steve Kerr had his like press, you know, post game moments where you could tell the losses were getting to him. But overall, I mean, considering the stress that they would just got off with the whole Durant era and that five-year finals run, this felt like just cake. And it was going to lead into an April 15th vacation. Now, everyone's summer plans are absolutely thrown up in the air, but um, I think it was a a necessary vacation, I would say. My word would be lucky. Uh, Lucky that they're going to have this draft pick. Uh, Lucky that they were able to replenish the assets, develop these young players who probably wouldn't have been able to develop in other circumstances, churn through these roster spots, save Joe Lacob some money uh, for next year. Uh, I mean, if they if they had just muddled along to a forty two win season this year, I think it, you know they maybe they don't trade Russell as well because they're like trying to make the playoffs or something. I think they uh, they overall got lucky that this happened to them because otherwise they really would be have a much more muddled future. And who knows, maybe this, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, can I attach something to your point? Yeah. I mean, and this is, this is going to long be known as the incomplete season too, because of what's going on, you know, globally right now. And this could have been, if this, if what is going on right now was dropped during one of the Warriors dynasty run season, you might've ripped a title away from them. Like LeBron is probably forever going to believe, or Giannis, the Bucks, whoever, the Clippers, like, one of these teams had a title ripped from them. The Warriors didn't. Whereas, again, like if any, if this had happened in past years, they would have believed that they had a title taken away from them. Yeah, I still have hope that we'll have some kind of a, a playoffs. But, but that's always yeah. going to have an asterisk, right? I mean, however this goes down, it's going to be like if the Lakers don't win it, you think LeBron's going to be like, yeah, you know, that was a legitimate playoffs that we just went through with like an empty gym in Vegas. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. I just want some basketball to watch, and I think people will watch it, and that's what matters much more than oh, is is this going to measure up as much historically as as other titles? Um, it's still it's still basketball to watch and analyze and uh, distract us from our woes here. But uh, thanks again for joining. You can uh, follow Slayer's work at the Athletic. They have this deal for new subscribers that you get your first ninety days free, and uh, we will be back tomorrow. Talk to you all then. Good Sunday afternoon, Easter Sunday to those of you who celebrate it. And Ben and I are back now to do our 
daily roundup on the COVID-19 crisis. And if this is your first time listening to this. Basically, what we try to do is we find the most important stories, not necessarily from a storytelling perspective, but just an understanding what's going on perspective, trying to predict what the end game of all this is going to be, the most important stories that are going to affect what our lives are going to look like over these next months, years, however long it's going to end up being. So the idea is we do all the research, we try to condense it down, give it to you in 30 or 40 minutes, and that way you can go about your day and you don't have to obsess over the news because that is what we are doing. So usually the way we like to do this, we'll, we'll have a hit a couple of pretty big topics and then we'll do a, a news roundup from the US and around the world. Uh, what have you been monitoring the most here uh, since we last talked, Ben? Well, I think the story that or the topic that we wanted to kick off today with was this concept of all-cause mortality, the actual reporting numbers coming out from different countries, cities, municipalities on uh, all deaths that have taken place since the pandemic has really started to hit some of these areas. And the idea of that as a measuring stick, as something to monitor and sort of what it what it means uh, in the long term and in the short term going forward as we monitor this. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that from on the federal level, there aren't really procedures for reporting here in the U.S. You know, states have different measures. You know, we've seen that for that invaluable COVID tracking project that various states are, are tracking various things. And, you know, there are procedures, obviously, if someone dies in a hospital to determine a, a cause of death. But those systems, like everything else that's uh, healthcare related, death related right now in a lot of areas is overwhelmed. So we may see some of these indicators lag. We may see some stuff not get characterized as COVID related. And then there's also the issue of, well, how many other deaths are there because the healthcare system may be overwhelmed? That's a, another major concern. It's are you going to count someone who can't get the same level of care after having a heart attack at home and ends up dying away? Is that COVID-19 related? You know, those are some of the issues that we're going to be struggling with here. Yeah. And I think that as a single measurement, it's probably the best tool we're going to end up having in terms of saying, what was the impact? What was what was the impact on death toll? You know, there's a secondary impacts, there's hospital, there's psychological impacts, there's financial impacts. But especially as things are unfolding, as you just pointed out, we know that a lot of fatalities in a lot of different places in the world are going untracked. And so being able to have some of this data come in is going to at least give us a slightly more accurate benchmark or measuring stick to track these things. Well, and one other thing that's uh, a little bit annoying about this is that there is an incentive for undercounting here, I think. And we saw it in China. I think there clearly was an incentive there to undercount in terms of cases, for example, the asymptomatic cases and reports that undercounting may have occurred in Wuhan, perhaps due to the same factors that you're talking about. I mean, even if you have the purest of hearts, it's still difficult to determine, especially in this chaotic environment that we're in right now, whether a death is COVID-related or not. But all of these stats are political footballs right now. And a lot of 
politicians are going to be judged rightly or wrongly well how did your area do in this outbreak right the the ones who are able to keep it down they're going to get credit the ones who weren't are going to get blame and that's a, a sad reality of this and we'd hope that in our more open society than say china we're going to do a better job and the truth is going to emerge but it is always important to remember what are the incentives of the people who are working with this data and reporting it to us uh, when we don't necessarily have other ways of getting it. And even regardless of incentives, just the fact that there isn't a standard boilerplate practice around the world or even even from state to state in the United States in terms of how to handle. Yes, it's it's understandable and easy to have the same practice. If someone comes into a hospital, they check a box by te- te- uh, checking, checking the box by testing positive. Boy, that was a mouthful for me. They test positive and then um, they go into the system that way. That's that's easy. But, um, you know, for instance, nursing homes. So NBC had a report coming out saying that there were um, now 2,500 long care facilities in 36 states that are battling coronavirus. And a number of them uh, are unreported. Some states don't have practices to even get these into the official systems. So in those nursing homes, they already uh, tracked down something like 22, here's the exact figure, 2,246 deaths. But they're saying that is going to be an undercount because a number of states said they couldn't even provide data or they declined to provide data. So we don't have that uh, standardization across the board. And as this is unfolding, that's going to make keeping track of these things very difficult. And so one thing you can do there is uh, point to the all-cause mortality. Did you have a a comment you want to jump in with? Yeah, I I do. Just that this is NBC News basically doing their own legwork to come up with these stats, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of legwork there to do that and reaching out to different states and different departments to try to accumulate all of these numbers. And, you know, a number of states didn't even get back to them. Yeah. And so uh, obviously, I mean, those numbers are quite sobering in nursing homes when you're looking at uh, those 2,500 long-term care facilities that have coronavirus cases. And we've seen the explosive growth that this can have uh, throughout nursing home and long-term care facilities. Yeah. And another point from NBC New York, uh, I can't remember if we, I think it broke after we recorded our last episode, but they've found a spike in cardiac arrest deaths in the home. Here's the quote between March 20th and April 5th. Uh, the department recorded nearly 2,200 cardiac arrest deaths at home compared to 450 over the same period in the last year. Theoretically, those aren't deaths that are being told as part of this story right now. And so if you look at things like all-cause mortality, it's probably going to be a better way to gauge the impact, um, not just as as you said, not just directly, but also indirectly. Because, you know, how do you account for a healthcare system being overloaded and someone who normally would get treatment that can't get treatment? Uh, one way you can compare it is to say, look at the period last year uh, and compare it with the period this year. Yeah, and those numbers uh, are going to be pretty ugly. Going back quickly to that cardiac arrest issue in New York, what I thought was 
crazy about it is well, well what is the reason why that number is going up right you hypothesize well it's because there either aren't enough ambulances that can come quickly or there aren't enough treatment resources uh, at hospitals and so the first five days of april more than 70 percent of cardiac arrest calls ended in a pronunciation of death and the article doesn't say what that number normally is but it says that the numbers are dramatically higher uh, across the board number of calls number of deaths and the percentage of such calls that end in death so i mean this is this is an example of exactly what we're talking about which uh could play out elsewhere in the country uh, detroit was is another metro area that has been overwhelmed new orleans and so it, you would expect that hey you know like there aren't enough ambulances to take all the covid 19 patients in and then you know usually you might be able to get an ambulance somewhere in 15 minutes 20 minutes or so and if you can get someone to a hospital quickly enough if, after a cardiac episode they could survive and that unfortunately seems to be happening a lot less now at least in new york based on these stats yeah and some of them of course could be covid related themselves you know there's there's uh, a lot going on there in terms of two, you know a five-time increase what was it about 450 normally to 2200 so uh some more data on this a forbes study tried to look at all-cause mortality in the european places that have released some of this data so for instance the italian government will release some of this data they looked at the uh, hardest hit regions and concluded that on top of 4,800 official deaths in this region in Italy, there were 4,200 more unexplained deaths, meaning if we look at the number of deaths last year and compare it to the same period where COVID has sort of struck in the last month or so here in Italy, there's 9,000 additional deaths, but only 4,800 are COVID-related. Yeah, so, I mean, the, and it seems like it, as they go through Portugal, France, the UK, you're seeing as much as double the number of official COVID deaths in terms of these unexplained deaths. Portugal, 311 COVID deaths. This is just within the scope of this study. Uh, 311 COVID deaths, but just under 1,100 overall. So that's a, yeah. a, another 200% more than the official COVID. You're above that. France, 860 official COVIDs uh, within the, the cohort of the study and 2,500 overall. The UK, 102 COVID deaths, 248 quote unquote, uh, above normal overall. So it, this is again, an indication that while, whether these are directly related to COVID or not, the at least secondhand effects, I guess you could say is leading to increases in deaths of, you know, it seems like as much as 200% over what the official numbers are in this study. Where do you want to go next? Uh, I think we can just take a look to check in on the overall numbers in the USA per that essential COVID tracking project. 522,000 positive tests through Saturday. We've crossed over now 20,000 deaths here in the U.S. Again, those are ones directly attributed to the virus. Also want to check in again on a tracking survey that 538 has been highlighting. It's actually by Thomas McAndrew and Nicholas Reich, where they bring together a number of experts and get their predictions. Uh, McAndrew is out of the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And so again, the, the, yeah. the idea here is that they're, they're trying to create that wisdom of the crowds effect by pooling experts and then basically averaging what their estimates are to get an idea of uh, not just where we're going, but maybe even things like current case counts, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And the, the hope is that this is the wisdom of a wise crowd, <laughs> not just a, a crowd, uh, because, because these are all uh, that's required. Field, field experts. Yes, yeah. that's required for the crowd to be wise. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. These uh, were conducted April 6th through, through 7th, and the belief was that as of April 5th, there were, is a, a week ago now, there were a total of 2.5 million actual infections. Now we've had, as mentioned, 522,000 positive tests as of April 11th. But the idea being that there may be asymptomatic cases, there may be cases where people are pre-symptomatic, haven't gotten tests yet, etc. So that was the, the consensus with a range of 986,000 to 8 million as of April 5th, uh, they thought. So, uh, and of course, in this case, we also have the issue of under testing, right? So, yeah. so we know that uh, our testing capacity is still sort of only hitting people in certain demographics and with certain symptoms. As of today, our positive test percentage is actually going up slightly, meaning we're having a, a tough time chasing down the growth. So, about 22%, according to the one of the tracking studies, about 22% of our positive tests, uh, of our all our tests are coming back positive. And you want that number, like for, for comparison, Korea, South Korea, um, they get about two to 3% of their tests coming back positive because they're trying to, you know, test people who just had contact with someone. So all those numbers are going to influence the range. And that's why you get something like between a million and 8 million actual infections. Yeah, exactly. And part of the reason I think for that range as well is just we've seen the difference that even, you know, a few days delay in locking down can cause if you want to compare, say, California to New York. Yeah. For example. Uh, well, this is the power of exponential growth. And also on that particular point, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of internet sleuths um, comparing the date that the two states officially locked down. I don't know if you've seen this, Nate, March 22nd for New York and March 19th for California. But the big cities in California were actually locked down about a week before that. I think in San Francisco, you guys were a couple days before us in Los Angeles and we were March 13th in Los Angeles. So a week or 10 days or something can have huge compounding effects when we talk about exponential growth. Yeah. And it did seem like the, the behaviors just trickled out into the general population, even before the uh, official lockdowns made yeah. it a little faster rate in the Bay than, uh, than they did in New York. So, but that's why you're, you're going to have this level of uncertainty and with many States, many places, uh, just having locked down relatively recently, you don't really know what the ultimate effect is going to be there and again to be clear what this is measuring is what experts think is the actual number of cases not the number of cases that would be actually diagnosed via a test as of that time other interesting thing out of this these experts believe that there might be a little bit longer of a tail to the outbreak than is commonly being thought of a lot of people uh including the government have talked about and governments of various states and cities have talked about all right you know this is going to be the bad week we're getting into the peak of the curve and these experts don't necessarily agree with that april may and june were each given more than a 20 percent chance of being the biggest month for hospitalizations i think that's usually a pretty good uh, the number of hospitalizations at a given time is especially when we're talking about potentially overwhelming healthcare services uh, and leading to some of these negative outcomes that we we're 
talking about in the previous segment that these experts at least seem to think that we could be a little bit further out for that now nobody really has any idea right of what when we're actually going to reopen what the effect of that is going to be what level of testing and contact tracing we're going to have at that point so my guess would be that that's where a lot of that uncertainty comes in you know with these experts a 42 percent chance thinking that they're not going to peak uh hospitalizations until after june 1st presumably that's tied to the idea of some kind of reopening and relaxing of restrictions and having it not be done in the way that it needs to and having a, another outbreak i i don't know about you i would be surprised if we just we maintain the same social distancing that we've had and then the outbreak still peaks in june that seems like a little bit longer of a period than i would expect unless there were some new reopening causing a second spike well i wonder if they're baking that in we know there's a lot of unknowns and moving targets to these kinds of projections but uh thinking about a peak after june 1st just recapping things we've talked about on different episodes here we know there's an incubation period that can be over a week maybe two weeks that's pretty well established uh and then once you get into that hospital system after your symptoms and your actual um, you know, disease kicking in or your illness kicking in, you go into the hospital system, you can be in there for a while. Yeah. So, so I wonder, I can understand where are we? We're in the middle of April right now. Uh, I can understand thinking that, hey, we're at least a month away. I do, I am kind of interested that June 1st would be, that's what, six weeks away from where we are? Yeah. Uh, I wonder how much of that has to do with other cities only very recently or other states only very recently locking down because at six weeks from the point of lockdown isn't too out of bounds with what we've seen in places like Europe. So I, I don't know. That's just speculation. But I think for the places that have locked down to think all the way out to June 1st does seem like if things are kept under wraps the way they are now, uh, that would that would re- require something else like maybe a second wave. I, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, there's uh, obviously a lot of reasons uh, for uncertainty. Um, what did uh, Dr. Fauci have to say about, is it Fauci or Fauci? Fauci, Fauci, it's okay. Fauci. We'll get your right. Italian, Chinese, we'll do French. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get all the names down before we're done with this project. Uh, Dr. Fauci has said that, quote unquote, gradual rollbacks could begin next month that is in may uh just to quote him here he said we're hoping at the end of the month that would be the end of april we can look around and say is there any any element here we can safely and cautiously start pulling back on if so let's do it if not just continue to hunker down yeah and he also noted that there's going to be a dependence on what the situation is in each area of the country and uh his quote was it's not going to be a light switch yeah my thought on this is well we better have testing and contact tracing totally straightened out to where experts really believe that we can do it i mean you know for example scott gottlieb has put out the figure of seven hundred and fifty thousand tests is that a week that he put out there i I would imagine oh where we are currently well no no that he wants to get to that that, that's what he believes the the required capability would be yeah i I mean it's it's per week i think depending on how you do it it might even be higher right yeah Uh, because i I think it should be higher yeah because Um, california alone was going for in the hundreds of millions of tests over a relatively short period right yeah 
So, it, it, I mean, to, but to me, reopening in any substantial way, you know, maybe it's like, okay, you can go see your friends at their house in a group of four who have locked down. But even then, I think you're, you're really risking a lot in terms of people misinterpreting uh, that into, all right, now you can go have a party with 20 people at your friend's house and, and get these super spreading events again. But to me, if you don't really have the testing that is required and you reopen then you get into the situation where you could easily start having community transmission again and you don't know where people are getting the virus from who, who they're passing it to and, and also i mean the other thing to me is you better just not be having any more community transmission before you're going to reopen as well because once more if you're the problem is with how difficult to detect this virus is if you're going to be having outbreaks that you don't have a tough handle on it, it's very difficult to get that with this long incubation period and also then the long onset of symptoms it's uh it's going to be very difficult to safely reopen anything without that so uh and frankly i haven't really been convinced that we're on a path to getting that type of testing capability and contact tracing capability whether it's virtual or in person on the timeline where you know the end of this month something like that anywhere will be ready to reopen that's at least from what i've seen maybe they're doing more than I've seen, but I'm uh, I'm skeptical there. Well, I think that's also why he's a little vague with these kinds of comments, right? He's saying like, if if certain things, what are the certain things? What you know, it was not going to be a light switch. So what is it going to be? We've talked about this a decent amount, so we don't have to belabor it. But certainly, you would need a plan and a certain amount of capacity with your infrastructure to succeed in implementing that plan. And I'm not sure exactly what those things are yet. One thing I'll add on this too is that I think I've seen this so much in the media, just in conversations that I'm having with people that I know. Everyone really wants to be optimistic. This sucks. Yeah, like we we are looking for any way out of this, whether it's certain cures vaccines the timeline for the vaccines being able to reopen again get back to normal all this economic pain that we're going through etc etc and i so desperately want that to be true i'm trying to almost self-correct when i'm looking at stuff at this point to be like hey you know what like don't be too optimistic if there's a story that is auguring that things you know whether it's on the health front or economy or reopening or whatever i'm trying to be doubly skeptical of that because everyone has the incentive to peddle that narrative right now People desperately want to hear that. They want to hear good news. That's just how we are. And so uh, my advice to you is you're reading stuff, uh, hearing news reports, whatever it is, like just wait, try, try not to get too excited about some of these things until they really become this, the consensus of the scientific community. Right. I mean, we just, we want to find, you know, one study, oh man, this could be it. You know, it just, we just, we're going to have to be patient. That's the nature of this virus. It just takes too long uh, in terms of some of these outcomes to really be making big conclusions conclusions about uh, what's going to work and what's going to enable us to reopen right now I well, think in a lot of these cases yeah and and one more point on that the cdc had a study this week on transmission looking at icus icus and hospitals and things like that and they basically found that hey maybe we should be looking at this thing as having a range of like 13 feet versus the recommended six feet um, it's getting all over your shoes you're tracking it places it's all over the equipment and so even even though we want to be optimistic to the conversation we just had, if you were to say, let people go back over, as we've discussed before in other episodes, all that close transmission or being you know, within a couple feet of people, spending a lot of time in their space... 
this is the kind of thing that potentially could open transmission rates back up and increase them. So there's a there's a desire for that optimism. I think we all have, but a certain amount of measuredness and preparedness is probably what's ideal right now. Well, here, this story that we're about to talk about can totally counteract any optimism. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm going to use San Francisco as a lens to talk about this issue, but obviously it's one that really uh, hits home in a lot of areas uh, of the country, and that is uh, the issue of COVID-19 and the homeless population, which uh, I think... Mm. The, the homeless issues uh, that we've had, uh, particularly in the Bay, but many other places as well, are really a, a national shame, at least as far as I'm concerned. And now we're going to have to confront some of these issues because, once again, I mean, we're kind of both on a national scale in terms and even a worldwide scale. We can only go back to normal when this is contained everywhere. And the homeless population has been overlooked for a long time. But I think one of the biggest fears when we first found out about this is how this is going to devastate state the homeless population and we're starting to see that now in san francisco there are now 70 cases in a homeless shelter that has 300 beds, 68 residents uh, as loosely as you can use that term unfortunately and two staffers I mean, that's showing you the explosive potential when a quarter of the people in the shelter are testing positive. And you would imagine there are probably more cases incubating at this point. There are a couple of cases. They tested everyone in it uh, and found out that there were 70 who tested positive. And, you know, let's keep in mind, too, with that false negative issue. If you've got 30% false negative, you're testing that whole population. They're all at, at risk. The number is probably going to be even higher than that. So... The, the question that California has been grappling with, other governments are going to be grappling with, is how do you take care of the homeless population? I mean, it's almost like, Ben, the only ways I can come up with for dealing with it are almost basically you have to deal with the issue of homelessness itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we go back a couple of weeks, this was something that's been on the radar, especially here in California, where in our major cities, you're up in the Bay, down here in Los Angeles, we have large homeless populations, unfortunately. And Governor Newsom had talked about plans to open up hotels to provide aid for those services. And then to your point, to me, I had the exact same reaction, which is, wow, you really have to look at tackling the entire issue, even if it's just in the short term, which gets a little bizarre for me. But, you know, you have to say to handle this uh, in the way that is probably the safest for them and everybody involved you almost have to tackle the entire thing itself, which is, you know, providing shelter, providing care, providing services, providing food, all of the sort of peripheral things that go with that and all the resources that go with that. Absolutely. And even just putting everyone together in a shelter, well, that's not going to help you reduce the number of cases. And I think it's important to really try to, and, you know, I'm lucky enough to have never been in this situation, but to the extent that we can really think about what it is like for a homeless person in this crisis, right? I mean, first it comes out, the shelter in place order comes out and, you know, that's certainly a bitter joke. All of these guidelines for yep. homeless people, even communicating that to them is going to be something that's really is going to take some outreach. You know, I'm, many homeless people don't have a phone where they're looking at the news every day, for example, um, or a TV to, to see the, the latest news. And, you could say, hey, you, you know, stop congregating and all right, well, is that realistic? Just stay in your tent 
all day and don't talk to anyone. I mean, the only solace that many people these have is interacting with other people within this vulnerable population. So you're going to have them not do that. And they, what are they supposed to do during that time? Like we, you know, if you have a house, do you have books, you have Netflix, you can zoom with your friends. Like they don't have any of the, any stuff like that. Yeah. So asking people in the homeless population to just completely self-isolate, it's just, it's not realistic. It's, it's a, it's a complex issue that we yeah, I mean, it needs its own podcast. There are people who study this and there's an element of uh, mental illness, so-called mental illness involved. And then you've got, um, you know, sort of different types of quote unquote homelessness. It's a very complex issue independent of COVID-19. And then when you introduce this factor, um, it probably multiplies that effect. The Healthy Streets Operations Center, HSOC in San Francisco, uh, they have uh, refocused efforts as part of this response to include things like not taking or removing tents, um, addressing criminal activity in encampments and on the streets, keeping areas clean, that includes regular street cleaning and power washing, collecting garbage from people living in tents, ensuring that the sidewalks are kept cleaner, uh, not allowing large yeah. encampments. Well, or ke- sorry to interrupt, but kept clear. Now, I mean, that's, and again, like this isn't a crap on San Francisco. You know, this is this is a nationwide problem and these are sensible guidelines within the resources they have available. But all right, keeping the sidewalks here, that's where a lot of people have to set up their tents. You know, in I yep. mean, many, many people, I'm sure have seen the photos, even if you don't live here in California. But yeah, yeah please continue. No, what did I say? Uh, cleaner instead of yeah, clearer? But, well, yeah. I mean, I, I just wanted to expound on that. No, one. thank you. Yeah. I've got sanitation on my, my hand-washing songs stuck in my head. Um, yeah. But by the way, if you're homeless, good luck finding a place to wash your hands. Yeah, yeah. no, these are all uh, you know serious challenges uh, for this community. Um, other things they're looking at, not allowing large encampments, meaning more than five tents, I assume, together. Uh, yeah, here's the next issue. They're asking people to stay one person per tent and keep tents at at least six feet apart. And then another huge thing that you alluded to is just trying to educate people on COVID-19. This is not a population that's going to have uh, a cell phone or the news plugged into their ear, listening to podcasts all day and things like that. So how, you know, how can you go about educating them on the issues as the pandemic is unfolding? So the plan as of now in San Francisco, which has uh, between seven and 8,000 homeless and only about 1,500 shelter beds in the best of times, is that they are going to try to house people in hotels. That's a, a throughout the state of California, they're trying that. But the cost of that is going to be, uh, at least as of the last look, $179 per night. So you're looking at uh, to house these people for even 90 days. You're looking at tens of millions of dollars. FEMA is going to try, is in theory going to cover some of that. Uh, in California overall, uh, this is from a, a, a April 11th report from the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, Gavin Newsom's office, the governor of California, said that uh, 1,800 hotels or motel rooms are now occupied as a part of this joint effort project room key between the state counties and FEMA and that the state has procured 8,700 rooms. And that's, uh, again, noting that that's the number of homeless people just in San Francisco by themselves. And there's 150,000 people overall homeless in California with 108,000 unsheltered. And just think about all of the logistical gymnastics that are required to do this, right? Okay, some people may not even, you know, due to substance dependence or mental illness, 
may may not even be appropriate to put them in a hotel room. Uh, you know, they need further care than that. Uh, there needs to be some kind of security. There needs to be some sort of nursing available. And, and we can distinguish, too, between homeless people who have tested positive or are showing symptoms as opposed to not. You know, this, if you're, you've got people who are showing symptoms and need somewhere to isolate, that's a, a big part of what they're trying to accomplish here. But they need physicians, nurses, caseworkers, got to deliver food, right? Because many, how are these people supposed to get food if, if you're homeless, even if you're healthy? You know, many of them are dependent on donations or, you know, they have to go into local shops to try to scrounge together something to eat. You know, they're not supposed to be doing that now. So that, that makes things very difficult. Uh, you need PPE for the hotel staff who are going to be cleaning these rooms. And so all of these logistics, even though this was announced almost a month ago, it takes a ton of time to get this in place. And how do you get people to these areas safely without overcrowding on, say, a bus? You know, they have, they may have pets, they may have personal belongings. Where is all that going to go? Yeah. It's, it's the logistical hurdles are insane. In a way, it's a, it's a microcaustic issue of opening certain sectors of the economy back up that you have to handle all of those logistical challenges, including cleaning, including protection of all the people involved, transportation issues. And we've been speaking of this through a California-centric lens where we've got over 100,000 homeless folks. But I mean, the estimates just in the United States alone, we're talking about a population, of maybe half a million people. So you know, this is a this is a challenge to keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, this is going to take money and vision and commitment and manpower that doesn't exist right now to really solve this. And we we might want to get on this because we aren't reopening anything if the virus continues to rage through the homeless population, right? I mean, the, the most vulnerable elements of society, the most vulnerable states and cities, the most vulnerable countries in the world, if we don't solve this problem everywhere, then we can't get back to normality, open borders, open economy, all this stuff. So if we didn't care about the homeless before, and uh, we didn't enough, in my opinion, uh, we better start caring now because an outbreak in any community is really something that's going to prevent all of us from going back to our normal lives. Yep. Well said. And, you know, important to keep in mind that that's a population that doesn't have advocates or champions necessarily. They, they don't host podcasts or things like that. So whatever whatever we can do, if that's something that you think is an area where resources and attention should go, if you buy what Nate just said, uh, you know, whatever we can do to, to push that forward is going to help solve that problem because it is a very challenging and difficult problem to solve right now. Let's get some good news. Uh, Boris Johnson released from hospital. We'll call it hospital rather than the hospital since it's uh, UK. It's good. You're, so your British pronunciation is down. We've got that <laughs> Well, nailed. I wouldn't say pronunciation, but my, uh, my verbiage. Yeah, your perhaps. verbiage, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Boris, he's doing he's doing well now. Um, he's still not going to immediately return to work. That's the statement that the prime minister's office has put out of London, and he wishes to thank everybody at St. Thomas's for their brilliant care. All of his thoughts are with those affected by the illness. That was the statement that they released. And then in a later video, uh, Boris did, I, I personally uh, enjoyed this part, really thanked him for the life-saving work. He thanked Jenny from New Zealand and Luis or Louis from 
Portugal. Yeah, so he made it without having to get put on a ventilator, but uh, he was receiving supplemental oxygen and, and was, of course, uh, in the ICU. So he's uh, one of the good stories. What's the latest in Japan now, Ben? This is something that we've been monitoring. It's, it's another interesting test case. They did things a little differently. They did close schools, but society has continued largely unabated, at least compared to other countries. And so uh, the hope was that they'd contain this, but they weren't necessarily doing the large-scale testing that South Korea had done. And so I, I think it's, uh, you know, Sweden is another one of these where they kind of didn't totally lock everything down. But what's uh, the latest now in Japan? Yeah, we were pushing our luck, asking for two consecutive positive stories because the issue in Japan now is the virus, the transmission seems to be growing enough that it's causing concerns. And now Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has finally declared a month-long state of emergency, uh, which is apparently the first time that's happened in Japan since their constitution came into effect in 1947. So that just puts into perspective the severity of things as we've discussed globally with this pandemic. He's asked citizens specifically to avoid bars and restaurants in the evenings right now. So not those full-scale lockdowns that we've seen in so many places, but some of these earlier preliminary measures, some of the measures, as Nate said earlier, that in places like in California, we maybe took a few days before the actual lockdown went into effect. So not a full-scale sort of shut down or quarantine asked or stay at home in Japan yet, but potentially moving that way. And just to put some color on this, two weeks ago, Japan had not had a single day with 250 new confirmed cases. And now this is, as we're recording, yesterday was the third day in a row with over 500 new cases. They actually had 743 new cases yesterday. And we can look at some traffic data. I looked it up. Like TomTom has traffic data of different cities. And it is representative of this idea that Japan has not really slowed down their flow. Their normal traffic congestion, for instance, was 60% on a given Monday in the spring and this Monday it was 45% to put that in comparison US cities have been like 0% they've just been no traffic for a while since the shutdown yeah yeah i mean I, there's traffic but not like traffic congestion delays. yes yeah. exactly yeah yeah and japan particularly vulnerable due to their aging population 28 percent of the country is over 65 they have a large percentage of smokers as well and one of the denser populations in the world and w one of the more transit reliant all of those uh, factors that you would think uh, could lead to a, a severe outbreak but we're still we're still trying to understand all of this uh, too I mean, if you look at Indonesia, for example, they are at 399 deaths. Indonesia, a lot of people don't know, has uh, over 200 million people and a very dense society as well. You would think that it would be higher, frankly, at this point. It doesn't seem like they, uh, I haven't followed the news that closely out of there, but uh, it doesn't seem like they have done, you know, severe lockdown type of stuff yet. So uh, they are implementing a few other measures like uh, insisting that public transit, buses, trains, airplanes only fill half their seats. You know, those seem like the kind of half measures that we don't really know the efficacy of, but Maybe there is some reason that it hasn't been that bad there yet. Uh, perhaps it's the weather. Who knows uh, what it could be? Or maybe it could be that the scale of the outbreak is being missed or it just uh, got seated there a little bit later. Tough to say in a, a lot of these places where we haven't seen you know a U.S. style outbreak yet. but it, Or it's delayed. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah right. I mean, I mean I think, it's hard to know whether that's coming or not. Right. I mean, there's I can't think of a huge reason why it wouldn't be coming in some of these places, but it, maybe there is something that we don't understand that's going to reduce the impact of the virus in some places. I mean, about a month ago, the the death toll internationally was officially at about 4,000 deaths, and most of those were in China. And so it can ramp up if it's undetected and spreading and then gets into certain parts of the population. That's what happened in Italy, then Spain, then France, then New York. Um, I'm not saying that is what's going to happen here, but that is certainly another possibility is that it's just sort of lurking in silence. What do you make out of this news from South Korea that at least 51 patients were diagnosed as having been fully recovered from the coronavirus and have now tested positive after leaving quarantine? Yeah, and I think that story was uh, maybe two days ago. I actually this morning saw another source saying it was even a higher number of people, like 90 patients or something. I think the key takeaway for me was that there was, quote unquote, a relatively short period of time after they were given the all clear that they tested positive again. And for instance, if you look at the Korean CDC's director general, she said the infection was likely uh, reactivated after remaining dormant. In other words, they weren't reinfected per se, but it was likely false negatives. Um, And that it was the thing we've talked about many times where they tested they tested negative, they still had it. And then the symptoms, you know, this is a disease where the symptoms can come and go. It's, it's as I said it earlier in the episode, you can be in that hospitalized or illness period for a while. And so probably just uh, prematurely discharged. Yeah. And that seems like the Occam's razor explanation here. If it really were that widespread that people could get reinfected, I think we would have heard more reports out of this. We talked about some of the inconsistencies with testing. I We can't rule out this possibility of reinfection, but it would make this virus unique indeed if uh, that occurred with it after people have actually cleared it for a true reinfection where they acquire the virus again externally after it's been completely controlled occurs. One more story internationally to get to out of Saudi Arabia. They have extended their nationwide curfew. Uh, Sunday, they extended it indefinitely after the country reported more than 1,200 new cases of the coronavirus in the last few days. All right, well, that will do it for us. Please support this program if you like it. Number one, tell your friends about it. Uh, We're going to be sunsetting it on Dunked On within the next couple of days. So... People, if they want to search for this, they can search for coronavirus, Nate Duncan, or just look at the top of my Twitter, my pinned tweet, at Nate Duncan NBA. And uh, we are not ad-supported. We don't intend to be necessarily anytime soon, but uh, I am paying Ben to be on there, so I would appreciate if you guys wanted to subscribe to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue, if you have the means to do so at the moment. I understand a, a lot of people may not be in that position right now. So we appreciate your support, and we'll be back tomorrow. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.